0: Dealers need service revenue to stay profitable, and as vehicles become increasingly complex, consumers need service and repair guidance now more than ever. But with the majority of consumers defecting from service bays by the fifth year of ownership, dealers aren't just losing that revenue, but also a chance to influence the next purchase. Enter Kelly Blue Book Service Advisor, where consumers search for the information they need. Trusting they can find the right repair partner for a fair price. Partner with Service Advisor, part of the number one most trusted third party automotive brand, and turn your service center into a profit center.
1: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Auto Remarketing Podcast. This episode features a panel discussion from this year's Auto Intel Summit and NRC Spring Summit, presented by Smart Auction in Raleigh, North Carolina. The panel is titled Inside the Economic and Market Factors Impacting Automotive. And it features Jonathan Banks of J.D. Power, Larry Dixon of the National Auto Auction Association, and Kevin Roberts from Gurus. It's all moderated by Joe Overby from Cherokee Media Group. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion originating from the Auto Intel Summit and, and the NRC Spring Summit.
2: Inside the economic and market factors impacting automotive panel. Uh, as Bill mentioned, I'm Joe Overby, a senior editor of Auto Marketing, and I'll be moderating this session. Want to thank these guys for, for being here today. It's, it's great to be with each of you, and we'll do a, a round of introductions. Kevin, we'll, we'll start with you and work our way down.
3: Sure, hi, Kevin Roberts. I'm a director of industry analytics at CarGurus.
4: Yeah,
5: Larry Dixon. I manage the uh, auction data solutions for the National Auto Auction Association, or NAAA.
4: And I'm Jonathan Banks from JD Power, and I manage product for what we call valuation services. Very
2: good. Well, uh, we'll, we'll start high level here, guys, and, and do a round robin. And Larry, we'll start with you, and, and Jonathan, Kevin, feel free to, to jump in as well. Um, what current macroeconomic trend or, or phenomenon are you seeing as, as most impactful to, to auto right now? Yeah, I think you have to say rates.
5: Um, you know, the, the massive jump in rates over the last you know, almost year and a half now uh, new and used rates are up anywhere from three to four points, um, which is rather significant. You know, for a for a twenty-seven thousand dollar used auto loan, um, a four point increase is going to add about four thousand dollars over the lifetime of that loan, all other terms equal. Um, and then, you, of course, you combine that with still very high used vehicle prices. So, you gotta say rates and and
4: just uh, lending in general. Kevin, yeah. Jonathan. So, maybe it's not macro technically, but um, supply is so, is going to be, I think, the really critical factor that everyone needs to think about. Um, it's been really tight on the new vehicle side, obviously causing use prices to rise. And now, what's going to happen is na- now, naturally, this year and moving forward, we're naturally going to have less use supply because. Those new vehicles were never built, so they're never coming back to the market as used. So when you kind of throw in this supply dynamic and basically a dearth of supply, that's a word Larry likes to use a lot, actually. You tend to see a lot of emotive responses from dealers of driving up prices that I would argue aren't really aligned with maybe the environment and we've seen it happen before where a lot of dealers buy inventory, they're underwater. Why? Because they kind of bought at an emotional state Um, and then 60 days later the vehicles depreciate. We even had some Uh, inventory problems at the end of 2022, if you remember, even though prices have been really high. So I'm gonna say that um, even though it's a microeconomic factor, um, really think about supply and really think about it's gonna be tight and think about when you're buying a vehicle that things are gonna change and just be careful even though the
3: vehicles aren't around, just understand that there will be depreciation out there. And if we're gonna stick with macro, I'd say, how strong the economy was in Q1 has been really kind of interesting. I think you're starting to see a lot of the econ forecasts start to evolve uh, as we look at the rest of the year. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern about uh, a hard landing uh, in 2023, and I'd say that's definitely kind of softening a bit uh, as we see the macro environment start to evolve.
2: Well, to, to follow up on that a little bit, Kevin um, and Jonathan, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Um, what has been, through the first quarter of the year, what has surprised you about the economy or the uh, automotive industry so far this year? Yeah, what surprised me is that prices started to
4: go up in February. That surprised me, but um, like Kevin said, I think a lot of it has to do with the economic strength, especially um, the labor market, of course. When you're working with you know, such a low unemployment rate and all the new jobs being created, it creates demand for vehicles. And I, you know, I'm shocked, I'll, I'm always shocked, because today's prices, used, used vehicles on average, are up 40% compared to 2019. So that's big. And, and used payments are up about 25%, so they're around $550. That's big. So the resilience of the customer and continuing to drive up prices, both in the wholesale and retail uh, used market, to me, was a surprise, because I, uh, I assumed we were going to see a slight uh, at least flattening or maybe some declines in February and flattening in March and then maybe an uptick uh, because you always see an uptick for seasonality during tax refund season. But the increase from February straight on was, was I think, kind of a shocker.
5: Larry? Yeah, similar to to Jonathan, I, I was really surprised by the jump, how significant it was. Um, Jonathan, I'm not sure what JDP, you know, what, what your data shows, but looking at MMR, uh, through March compared to December, you, wholesale prices were up 9%, um, which is just incredible. Um, yeah, prices usually go up in, in the spring, but you know, given all of the headwinds that consumers are, are facing, right, high interest rates, high inflation, yeah, employment's okay, but obviously there, there have been a lot of tech firms, highly publicized um, layoffs at, at, at uh, tech firms. You know, I think that there was back to kind of what Jonathan was saying, emotive, which is a very much a Jonathan Banks word, um, that dealers were somewhat speculative uh, in terms of their, their buying um, really, to, to, which drove prices up a, as much as they did. You know, so We'll kind of see how things shake out here now that tax refund season is, is almost done. You know, it still has a little bit of uh, a runway,
3: but um, yeah, I, I was most surprised by that. So I think uh, Paul Krugman wrote in his newsletter last week calling immaculate disinflation. Uh, and I, I just kind of chuckled at that. I think it's, it's a good term. That's kind of the new phrase you could say for the soft landing you might be able to see. Inflation's coming down, which is great. But we really haven't seen an increase in unemployment rate at all. And so there looks like there could be this really great window where we could curtail inflation without massively disrupting the labor market. Um, and, you know, I think the major question now is, are they going to be able to pull this off, um, you know, keep, keep interest rates at the right level uh, with uh, kind of derailing things? This going to be the really kind of interesting yeah. thing and surprising thing we're seeing right now. Yeah, agreed.
2: You guys have touched on this a bit, but affordability kind of remains you know, a big concern for both new and used. A lot of that has to do with inflation rates. Um, but Kevin, you, you mentioned in a recent uh, CarGurus analysis that there's hope for a reprieve in pricing and more importantly for a more affordable mar- more affordable vehicles to hit the market. What gives you that optimism?
3: So on the new side, we've really just seen uh, OEMs prioritizing higher margin, higher price trims uh, and, uh, you know, that chip shortage we were dealing with last year. Now that we're starting to see new vehicle production come back, uh, my thought is that we're eventually going to start seeing, you know, some of those lower price trims, more cost efficient vehicles being produced. And that should help to bring down um, prices on the new side uh, from a listing price side. On the use side, you know, we've already been kind of mentioning the seasonality that's going to be taking effect there. And that decline in seasonality may help to see some softening in use prices. So that's, that's kind of where the thought is that we might see some, some give on affordability uh, in the coming months.
2: Jonathan, what is the J.D. Power data showing you? Are you seeing the similar expectations for improving affordability? Yeah, so...
4: Um yeah, new vehicle inventory is coming back, but many manufacturers are still pretty much build the order. Um, but what we are seeing is we are seeing incentives come out. Uh, it's still really low, 3.5% of MSRP. That's not much. To put that into context, you know the run rate pre-COVID was around 10%. Um, so that's the lever they can pull really easy, right? They pull the incentive lever. So yes, trim mix for sure is going to change right now, but there will be a problem because they've also been building, uh, right now the inventory on the lots is really expensive and actually misaligned with what the sales prices are. So we, we have the misalignment there. So we will see some incentives to create, if you want to call it value. I mean, I, I trip out on this, like a Ram truck is 60 to $70,000 of Ram truck. Uh, so, you know, you're gonna see like incentives on a 60 to 70 thousand ram truck is that affordable well it's affordable when there were no incentives on it so we will see that incentive level pulled the used market is interesting though because and this is something i harp about all the time and anyone that see me can contest to this i always talk about you know i've been doing this long enough to see cycles and all the manufacturers pulled away from building small cars except VW, VW built some small cars, but a lot of manufacturers pulled away from small cars. And that segment, small car segment, has always been a great affordable segment, and they've been putting great tech in there and quality, as you know, vehicles have been improving. There's less of those coming back. So when you look at that mix of used vehicles, and once again, there's gonna be a disconnect, right? From an affordability standpoint, because all the used vehicles coming back are gonna be all these great COVID vehicles when we could sell whatever the heck we wanted at whatever the heck price we wanted, it. And now you're in the used market where there's going to be arguably an affordability issue no matter if there's a recession or not, which I'm, I'm with you about the recession. Looks good with the labor market, but you never know with our government either. But um, so that's for me like affordability, it, you're going to see disconnects, but you're going to start seeing deals. But these deals, remember, are coming off of really lofty prices. But, um, and then the used market, it just naturally, when we start to see new vehicle production come back, although we're still really low, we're at about 1.2, 1.3 million on the ground. We normally were at three million. We probably are gonna be more like at two and a half million, but we're still at half of what we we need to actually create a market that satisfies demand, that will
2: sort of ease prices in a meaningful way. So I kind of went a little long on that, sorry guys. Do you think, Jonathan, do you think, some automakers will reverse that decision that they made and start, you know, I know it could take you know, years for this to happen, but decide, hey, maybe we should get back into the small, mid-sized car segment. Uh,
4: turning the ship of an OEM is, is, is really difficult, yeah. but they've done it before. Um, Honda and Toyota and it, here's the thing. If you build a good car, no matter what segment it is, people buy it. Like, oh, we're going to get rid of our compact car. Yeah, because it sucked. You know, it's it's you know it's like had a you know 10-year life cycle. Wow, people aren't buying small cars. Seriously, it's they build what they the cars that they that the manufacturers invest in sell, right? You know, so to me, you build a good Jetta, you build a good Civic, you build a good Corolla, people still buy them. You build a, you know, a crappy Cobalt or a, you know, whatever. I forget what the Focus ended up being called in the end, or maybe it was the Focus. You know, you, they you, they get long in the tooth and they go away. So I'm going to say that maybe we, the the ship maybe will turn, and I think though. I, I still believe that generations react against other generations. So I believe you know, the Gen A and the Gen Zs, they're going to be looking at you know, this ostentatious vehicle that is too big for whatever they need and maybe be more pragmatic. My daughter is. She's 18. She's way more pragmatic than I was when I was 18. Yeah, I wanted a 4Runner you know, that had got like 12 miles to the gallon. Because it was cool.
1: <laughs>
5: so I don't know how OEMs can afford to do that. <laughs> yeah. To, to go build small cars. I mean, I agree there were a lot of subpar small small cars out there. But they have to pay for the EVs, you know. No. Yeah. Uh, their investment true. in EVs. So I think that bodes well for used vehicles in general. You have to have a substitute. That they are the substitute for those new vehicles that are no longer being produced in mass. But I just think from a financial standpoint, it's it's not feasible.
2: Well, uh, well, Larry, I, I do want to t- talk a little bit about wholesale and wholesale supply. Um, you know, NTRA recently put out its uh, annual report looking at auction volumes from twenty twenty two, and uh, wanted to get a sense, you know, through the first few months of twenty three, how is auction volume faring? Any particular consignment segments stronger than the others?
5: yeah it's actually up, so Jonathan is is absolutely um right understandably so you know the overall uh, 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 you know, availability of used vehicles is going to go down right because you, know, you don't have used vehicles without you know new vehicles, so we know that new vehicles have, have fallen significantly over the past several years, but there is increased churn um, particularly from commercial remarketers or consigners so um per NAAA's auction net, wholesale auction uh, network of participating member auctions say that three times fast. There are about Mm -hmm. 270 uh, NAAA members that contribute their sales data um, to to auction net. So um, according to that network of of auctions, wholesale sales are up by about 7% or were up 7% over the first quarter of the year. Um, And that was all due to commercial um, volume. Dealer volume was flat, which of off-lease, um, uh, rental volume, right? FMC or fleet management company volume, that stuff was up because they can now buy new vehicles in, in larger quantities, which means that they then have to remarket the, the uh, older vehicles that
2: were in their portfolios, so, yeah. Well, uh, I know, Jonathan, um, you, at the Auto Summit in um, Dallas a few months back, you mentioned, you kind of talked about the Um, expectations for off-lease to to slow and and how much has slowed already. So uh, we'll kind of shift to retail, but also kind of look at the um, impact of of off-lease and the wholesale channels. Um, You know, when when off-lease volumes are are where they are, Slowing, you know, how are dealers kind of finding used inventory, especially for CPO programs? Um, And Jonathan, we'll start with you and have Kevin follow up. What are some alternative ways they're going about finding uh, used car inventory? Well, shoot, they're being really, cre- I'll pick on
4: Igor because he's sitting here, so use VW as an example. I don't know, I'm sorry, you're right in my line <laughs> of sight. But VW has done a cool program, I think. It's creative, right? They have um, people coming back from leases, they're offering, what is it, like 9.9% financing, something like that, but they have to meet this criteria being a returning lessee. So, and the reason that they're doing this is because their you know, leasing just basically went away. Right, so that inventory is going to be incredibly hard to find. You need to get incredibly creative to keep it. I would argue in your dealer network. To your point of creating the CPO product, which I've always been a fan of that. Um, but you know, you got cre- you know, you got folks like CarGurus that are digital platforms and Carvana. always just you could everyone can find an anecdote for Carvana, right? Everyone who is remotely savvy will look up their vehicle as a trade-in at Carvana first, because I've even heard people they've they've had double the offer um, of what they would get from a dealer. So when you start thinking about that uh, direct to consumer purchasing, the dealers and dealers are really good at this too, right? I think Penske doesn't uh, keeps all every one of their trade-ins in in house, and I can't remember AutoNation's number, but it was above 50 percent. I think it was more like 70 to 80 percent that they actively, you know, are getting that vehicle back from the consumer. So all this digital retailing and omni-channel stuff is real. Um, To me, I think one flaw still is we're kind of old school on the instant cash offer. This lowball wholesale value is not going to work. CarMax will beat you. Carvana will kick your ass. So you really need to have a price that is real, that takes into consideration we hear about how many hours research? Nine hours, I think I've heard that people do on the internet. Your trade in is part of that nine hours of research. So I would say if we really want to have that digital retailing work and for dealers to get the right inventory, it's all about like not only the, a lot of there's been a talk about a lot of talk about condition, but I'm gonna say that offer price is super important too. That can't just be the auction value. It's gotta consider: hey, this is what I buy the car for, this is what I sell the car for, this is my profit. I need to make an offer that's competitive where I'm still making money, good for the consumer, good for the dealer, it's just a win. Just That low-ball ICO offer is mm-hmm. thing of the past. So anyway, that's the, it, it's gotta
2: continue to be creative because use supply just keep going down, it's you know, competitive. Kevin, what, what are some ways you're seeing dealers get creative in finding that used car inventory?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think now that we're seeing you know, a lot of the changes that were just being talked about, they're having to go out to consumers a lot more uh, and it's twofold. So one, I've been seeing an uptick in people trying to buy my lease vehicle right now. It, it felt like it kind of slowed down for a couple months there, up until like last summer. It was really hot; everyone wanted everything uh, pretty quickly. It slowed down for a bit when the prices were declining. Um, but now that you know inventory's a little bit tighter on the used side and prices are rising, uh, those you know kind of uh, direct offers are coming back in but it's also really kind of sourcing that inventory at the right price as well. Again, with some of this price sincerity out there, uh, you got to make sure you uh, source that inventory at the right price so that you can remain profitable on that unit no matter what kind of happens.
2: We, uh, we, we talked a little bit earlier about EVs and how that's a, that's a great option for, um, you know, the, uh, it's, it's an option now for, for customers and OEMs are, are focusing on that. Um, more so in the new car market, but, but Larry, are, we're starting to see these used EVs at the auction lanes. Are you seeing volumes increase uh, of, of the amount of those vehicles that are, that are arriving in wholesale channels at your member auctions? Yeah,
5: yeah we, we are through, through auction ed, but um, the no, overall number is minuscule. Yeah. So last year we recorded about 35,000 auction sales of, of EVs, and those are just straight EVs, not plug-in hybrids. Um, out of about six million sales uh, this year, uh, volume year over year of the in the first quarter, it was up. It doubled, incredible. But it was still like fourteen thousand yeah. units. Um, so we have a, a ways to go um, before volume is, is really meaningful. But that's kind of a good thing because the auction industry, in particular, I mean the the entire industry. Um, really has a lot of work to do to prepare for for the volume uh the ev volume that is estimated i mean this the latest ep emissions um, suggested uh, rules are just kind of mind-boggling in terms of the time frame and the number of vehicles but anyway auctions uh as with many other um parts of the uh the industry they have a lot to do to to get
2: prepared so. and you know one of those uh one of those pieces that kind of is, is if not the entire kind of linchpin of it is, is the battery health. And um, Kevin, to, to follow up on something you had in an, in an analysis recently, you mentioned that um, looking at average listing prices by model years, EVs look to proportionally retain their value compared to ICE hybrids up until the vehicle hits about 60,000 miles. And then battery age and security kind of plays a bigger role when it, when it gets near 100,000 miles. So what, what has to happen to kind of change that? Uh, I think it's a couple things. One, we got to get more vehicles out there. Uh, I
3: mean, EVs are still, I think it's 6-plus percent of new sales in Q1 of this year. So, I mean, there's still a real, relatively small proportion of vehicle sales out there. Um, two, uh, you know, if the average age of the fleet is 12-plus years, um, these vehicles, the batteries are expected to last about 10 years or so before you're going to have to change it out. I think you have to get consumers comfortable with the fact that they're going to have to change it. And so a lot of the cost savings that you're gonna have with an EV, uh, not having to have those kind of standard maintenance intervals up front, there is gonna be a larger cost that is gonna come onto the vehicle towards the end. So you're gonna have to get customers kind of comfortable with that, what that process might look like. And we'll just have to build up kind of the infrastructure of the fleet to get kind of used to that. So I think we're seeing some cost sensitivity from consumers once that vehicle gets closer towards the the end of that battery life of that vehicle. And again, the final thing we'll have to kind of figure out is we're really used to looking at the mileage on the car to determine kind of the wear and tear on the vehicle. But batteries are gonna be a lot more about how it was charged, not just how it was driven and where it was located and how it was charged, cold conditions, things like that. And I think that's gonna be a, you know, another kind of factor uh, we're gonna to have to figure out as EVs start to become much more uh, dominant share of the fleet.
2: Well, to, to follow up on that, Jonathan, the, I see in your title here vehicle valuations. So, how does how does the valuation process of an EV kind of differ um, from an ICE? Kind of along the lines of what Kevin said.
4: Um, I mean, the hard part right now is you don't have that much data of the new sort of wave of better EVs. Yep. Well, when I say better, they're just more aligned with what normal people want. They're not. Leafs and bolts and I3s, and now you have good vehicles, range that aligns with what the consumers expect. So the data is not there. So one thing that we have to really think about is, a lot of it more, is the forward-looking stuff. So what we do is we look at um, what what will drive, so really the start is you want to have a really good estimate of demand. So it's hard to say what actual demand is of EVs. Right now, once again, just like other vehicles, they're building to order. So share is what it is, right? They're just, people are buying what they're building. They're just building 6%. But um, that's not really demand. Demand is, even arguably much more based on the surveys that we're looking at. It's probably closer to about 30% of people want to buy EVs and that will keep getting higher and higher as the number one reason is the infrastructure, talking about not being ready. The United States is not ready for the volume of EVs that are going to be you know, basically forced into the market. I mean, we better get our act together fast to build that infrastructure because that's one of the number one reasons that people don't buy EVs the other the second highest reason they don't buy EVs is because of price but all this production is coming online and eventually, they're gonna scale it, just like if you remember when the Prius came out, I think they were losing like $18,000 a copy or something ridiculous like that. And obviously, over time, you start to get economies of scale and it's a profitable business. So afford it, the price is gonna go down. I don't know about our infrastructure. I mean, we're not China. China crushed it, but you know they did it a different way. We're, we're trying to build our infrastructure and it's more of us, once again, like a slow moving ship when we should be moving at lightning speed. To build the infrastructure. So um, you know, it's I I think we have a a lot to do, but for, for me looking at it, I think it's so when we are forecasting, we're really looking at the product is much better, so we can do direct comparisons to ICE vehicles. From our forecast, too, we focused at three to four year old. So we're not worried so much about the battery deterioration too much. And anecdotally the companies that I've talked to that have looked at battery retention for Teslas, like you know six year old five-year-old Tesla's the retentions actually in the high 90s so it's not like batteries are eroding after five years to fifty percent of capacity I mean they're still working quite well and you still have a bunch of you know Prius has been around forever you you don't read anything about you know the horrible battery life of a Prius and granted you know it's a hybrid but still um, so I, I it, to me, there's a big disconnect in perception between all those things between uh, consumers, what they think about an EV and what the EVs actually are, and that gap is going to widen because the products are getting way better, and perception will still remain fairly low because it takes a long time to get customers to change their perception. And not having a good infrastructure is obviously bad. It just feeds the, fuel, the fire of like we're not just we're just not ready for EVs because when you look at the adopters' movement. Yeah, that's improving, but the rejectors are also getting higher too. So more people are saying they're not going to buy an EV. Smaller percentage than who will buy an EV, but you're seeing that movement on both ends of the spectrum because of um, you know the fact that we're we're missing some key components. So so anyway, long story short, forecasting is tough.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's why they pay you all the big bucks. Um, well, Kevin and, and Larry, we're curious to see. You know, Jonathan dressed kind of the larger infrastructure that has to be done for for EVs. What are some ways that dealers and auctions themselves within their own small businesses can kind of prepare for that and help with that infrastructure? I
3: mean, I think really just trying to figure out if you can bundle the uh, home EV charging with a new EV is a great, great opportunity there. Uh, I mean, as Jonathan mentioned, the overall public infrastructure probably isn't there yet. And so you'll have to figure out the kind of the home uh, EV charging thing that, you know, doesn't take care of the entire grid component there. Um, But uh, I I think that's a great opportunity on the dealer front to really kind of embrace EVs, besides having charging on site and, you know, training uh, consumers uh, on that front, but really kind of helping package on that home charging front is a key avenue.
5: Well, um, from transportation of EVs, having the charging stations within the auctions themselves, working with the local utilities so that you can install the appropriate number of chargers there, um, from a safety standpoint if an EV catches on fire, what do you do, right? These things burn at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You're not just going to have you know, a, a, a porter go out there and throw a fire blanket over it or someone dig a, dig a <laughs> hole and bury the thing and fill it up. Um, with uh, thousands of gallons of water, um, so there are a myriad of things that, that need to occur at auctions um, to prepare for this coming. You know, I guess I, can, I guess we can call it a wave of, of EVs. And so, this is a, a kind of one of the, the higher priorities for in AAA and, and for our various uh, committees. Um, like I said before, thankfully the the volume is it's manageable <laughs> right now to say to say the least. But there's a long list. Uh, of uh, things that that need to um, be done here over the coming years to address this uh, this volume. Yeah. Do the folks at the auctions already have chargers? Like a not really. Some are do a, a much better job than others, um, but for the most part, no. Like half or less. than I would be far less than wow. that. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, we've got about two minutes left, and uh, we'll we'll work our way down, starting with Kevin and and Jonathan, you'll have the last word. uh, Work our way down and have each you guys give a a parting shot a takeaway for our attendees here. Take it away, Kevin.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think the main thing right now is it's going to be interesting to see how the used inventory uh, environment evolves this year. Um, Getting really tight right now, Um, new inventory is improving on that front, so it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves throughout the year. Uh, really interested to see how that evolves, and I think that will really help us understand uh, what's going to happen with uh, used pricing. Yeah, I agree, I'm, I'm
5: interested to see how things play out there. Um, I think with you know, used retail prices, what occurred over the first quarter of the year, um, dealers again I think, whether they were led by emotion or they were speculating in terms of consumer demand and, and what was going to occur there. Uh, we're now seeing retail sales i'm not sure what you guys are seeing in, within the JD power uh, pin network, um, but it looks like used sales are at least leveling off if not coming down from a from a retail standpoint so I think there's uh, more certainly more downside risk um, in terms of used vehicle depreciation over over the course of of the year um, than otherwise you guys are like down nine percent I think something like sales else. yeah so sales or sales? prices
4: prices are kind of uh, they were they actually Ticked up a little bit. What were you expecting for the year though? Oh, yeah, forecast? no, the year 9% wholesale. Yeah, so yeah. I would
5: kind of skew more toward your that estimate there. Um, yeah, so we could be in for a year that was pro- similar to last year. You know, yep. the year started out strong. Yep. We yep. had rather significant depreciation throughout the course of the year. I mean, by no means would prices fall off the a cliff. They can't when volume has been cut like it has, unless super consumer demand completely try, dries up, then we have a much larger issue economically. Um,
4: yeah. yeah. Yeah, so to, to me too, one of the things, we all can kind of agree that one of the primary drivers of use prices going up so much was the new vehicle inventory. It's not like I'm not going out on a limb on this. And I was talking to my colleague earlier about, um, you know, all this EV, yep, yeah, that's him, Tyson Jomany, Um <laughs> But we, it it made me think, but we have all this EV production coming online and I didn't really think about this before. That production is incremental to the normal production of ICE vehicles. This isn't like we're changing our, you know, platform running through the same plant. So now you have all this new incremental, new vehicle supply coming from EV production. Cool, right? So we're gonna have, regardless, that inventory starts to improve arguably now you have all these new segments with the, you know these EVs and new segments, new vehicles that create just more consumer choice. And meanwhile, we're going to have this tight use supply. So if you're a dealer out there and you're looking for a lease return, good luck, or even like a zero to five year old vehicle, use supply is going to be down our estimates about 12 percent for the late model use. That's just the late model use. Of course, that's what's impacted most by COVID. So I'm going to say that be careful, I've seen it so many times, both ways where emotion gets involved in pricing. If you look at the wholesale market, price volatility is much more extreme than the retail market. The retail market's much more stable, so if you think about that, that's the dealers are driving the wholesale price, consumers are driving the retail price. So that volatility that's happening could create some serious problems like we had in December. And if you remember, it was like the media went crazy. The bubble has burst. The used market's going to collapse. Armageddon and whatever, and they had videos with fire and bombs. They really did, and and you know the even the mainstream media picked it up. It's like and and we're going well, not really. it The prices are going to moderate, and guess how much they're going to moderate? We think like like Larry just asked nine percent by the end of the year, and we still believe that. But when you think about nine percent year over year, I put them up thirty-one yeah. percent. You said they were 40% yeah, forty percent up, so thirty-one yeah. percent. And I got I have one example I'll end with. So. If you bought a 2016 Toyota Camry in, 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 as, a, in, as a three-year-old in 2019, and you drove it around all the way till today, and you drove it however many miles, and you're like spilling food, and your, your kids are you know throwing their whatever sippy cup, and your, your vehicle, that 2016 Camry that you drove around, and you beat to death, we well, probably didn't really beat it to death, I'm exaggerating, but it's worth $400 more as a seven-year-old vehicle. So the three-year-old in 19 was, it was worth $400 less than what your vehicle's worth now. So when we think about this Armageddon, it's like, it's a joke, so don't fall for the hype. But you do need to think about depreciation because uh, going down 9% is also negating the about four, what did you say, Larry, 7% the wholesale prices up this year? Or nine percent? They're up nine so yeah. percent so it's erasing the nine percent, and yep. we're saying another nine percent. That's pretty extreme depreciation over deal. the remainder of the of the year. So, and we believe it's true because the headwinds are there. We talked about a bunch of them. So, that be careful when you're buying vehicles and price them right. And think about depreciation and go back to basics. You know where we have to think about what we buy <laughs> because the the, the, good, the if you want to call COVID the good old days. Because it was really, really easy, um, they're they're going to actually go to what would really be considered the good old days, which is like a normal market.
2: Yeah. So. Well- your point on having a little bit of perspective around numbers and percentage drops etc i had a professor in college it was a statistics professor who said there's lies they are damn lies and there's statistics yes.
0: mm-hmm. so percentages yeah. are super fun right
2: <laughs> well uh well guys thank you all so much for for being a part of this panel let's give them a, a, a round of applause
1: we hope you enjoyed that conversation that originated from this year's Auto Intel Summit and NRC Spring Summit in Raleigh, North Carolina. And if you've missed any of our past episodes of the podcast, just go to our website at autoremarketing.com and click on the podcast box to find our library of past episodes. Or simply subscribe through whichever platform you get your podcasts. For fellow hosts, Bill Zadites, and Joe Overby, as well as our outstanding executive producer, Matt Rice. I'm Nick Zulovich. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you again next time on the Honorary Marketing Podcast.
0: Dealers need service revenue to stay profitable. And as vehicles become increasingly complex, consumers need service and repair guidance now more than ever. But with the majority of consumers defecting from service bays by the fifth year of ownership, dealers aren't just losing that revenue, but also a chance to influence the next purchase. Enter Kelly Blue Book Service Advisor, where consumers search for the information they need, trusting they can find the right repair partner for a fair price. Partner with Service Advisor part of the number one most trusted third-party automotive brand, and turn your service center into a profit center.